Hey, I want to thank my friends at Innisfree for their promotional products and underwriting. Their fresh-squeezed, hydrating green tea loaded with amino acids and antioxidants help replenish and neutralize skin for that natural glow. Want to know the best part? Their tea is organically grown and chosen for skincare from 3,301 Korean native green tea varieties. The winning 1-2-3 punch combination consists of the youth enhancing serum with black tea. Then you just dap, 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 a little bit of the eye serum underneath your eyes. And finally, the enhancing cream. Oh my goodness. Like Muhammad Ali used to say, I'm pretty, I'm still pretty. They offer innovative beauty solutions for men, also powered by the finest natural ingredients responsibly sourced from Korea's pristine Jeju Island. Their proprietary extraction methods preserve the purity and potency of these wholesome ingredients from plant to bottle to your skin, offering advanced formulas that safely address all skin concerns without the use of harmful chemicals and preservatives. With the wonders of nature at the heart of Innisfree, they take care to preserve and protect the environment in all that they do. We want to thank our friends at Innisfree for their promotional products and underwriting of Light 'em Up. Hey, welcome to this episode of Light 'em Up. We take a deep dive on the criminal justice system, crime scene investigation, and leadership. We enlighten, educate, and empower others with the truth. Like it or not, the truth disturbs, the truth divides, but ultimately, the truth delivers. Hey, I'm your host, Phil Rizzo. I'm the principal owner of Rizzo's Protective Group. We are a high-risk security consulting firm headquartered out of Akron, Ohio, and with offices in the Bronx, New York, and Cerro Alto, the Dominican Republic. Hey, as we put the ball on the tee to line things up for kickoff, we speak life, health, and prosperity over each and every one of you, and we want to thank you for tuning in and joining us today. Hey, as we move through Black History Month and roll out this second installation, the first having focused on pretextual traffic stops made by law enforcement that disproportionately impact minorities and individuals of color, often loosely referred to as DWB or driving while black. Hey, don't forget to check out our full catalog of episodes at https colon slash slash lightemup.buzzsprout.com. We are currently in Season 3, and this will be Episode 3. And while you're at it, subscribe to us at Rizzo's Protective Group on YouTube. Hey, if you want it done right, have Rizzo's Protective Group on site. Hey, today on this special edition of Light 'em Up, we'll be delving into all things regarding Black History Month with our exclusive returning special guest, Dr. Sandy Womack Jr. He'll be taking the witness stand and sharing his testimony with us, and we are extremely fortunate to be sitting down with Dr. Sandy Womack Jr., as we mentioned, for our final 
special installation during the celebration of Black History Month. Dr. Womack Jr. is the Region 3 Area Superintendent of the Columbus, Ohio School District, the largest district in the state of Ohio, and a lifelong educator with 30-plus years of experience. He's an inspirational, motivational leader, frequent motivational and keynote speaker, role model, as well as an urban educational transformational expert, and the author of two books, first entitled Even the Best of Plans Go Astray, and Creating Successful Urban Schools, the Urban Educator's Month-by-Month Guide to School Improvement. The cornerstone of his educational philosophy that has led to tremendous positive outcome is that exposure changes expectations, but experiences change lives. Dr. Womack Jr. earned his Ph.D. in educational leadership from Ashland University. He is a devout man of learning, wisdom, and history. Most importantly to me, he's a dear friend of mine in whom I respect greatly as well. When we extended an open microphone to Dr. Womack for Black History Month, we were honored and thrilled that he accepted our invitation and that we can bring him to you, our listeners, in this forthcoming conversation. I always feel like I'm speaking with one of the village elders when I'm fortunate enough to chat with Dr. Womack Jr. He epitomizes all what a servant leader is and should be in thought, word, Indeed. Hey, Doc, welcome to the show. Welcome back to Light em Up. Thanks, Stu. How you doing, man? I'm great. I'm great. Truly blessed, and uh, we're just honored to have you here. I know we're going to really cover some good ground. Thanks, man. Looking forward to the opportunity, and thank you for having me on for uh, Black History Month. You know, started by uh, Dr. Carter G. Woodson in 1926. Uh, it was actually Negro History Week. A lot of people have a disclaimer believing that Black History Month is in February because it's the shortest month of the year, um, but actually because Abraham Lincoln and uh, Frederick Douglass' birthday were in February uh, when it started off as Negro History Week. Um, and so Dr. Carter G. Woodson uh, started it in February as Negro History Week, and it has continued as Negro History Month um, as a result of that. Absolutely. And, you know, we want to we wanna build a little bit on that. Everything you said is spot on. As usual but for those listeners who may be international in scope who may not know much in in the origins of black history month uh, as dr womack did say and is absolutely correct for sure the celebration started with dr carter g woodson uh, he was born as a sharecropper in 1875. Dr. Woodson went on to become a teacher and the second African-American to earn a doctorate from Harvard. He founded the Association for the Study of African-American Life and History in 1915 and was eventually known as the father of black history. On February 7, 1926, Woodson announced the creation, as Dr. Womack mentioned, of Negro History Week to encourage and expand the teaching of black history in schools. As Dr. Womack stated, he selected February because the month marks the birthday of the two most famous abolitionists of the time, Frederick Douglass and Abraham Lincoln. And February 1st is also National Freedom Day, a celebration of the ratification of the 13th Amendment, which abolished slavery in the U.S. By the 1940s, schools in Woodson's home state of West Virginia had begun expanding the celebration to a month. And by the 60s, demands for proper black history education spread across the country. Kent State University's 
black united students. That's right, Kent State, right here in our own backyard, the Golden Flashes, proposed the idea of a Black History Month in 1969 and celebrated the first event in February of 1970. President Gerald Ford officially recognized Black History Month in 1976 during the U.S. Bicentennial. Straight out of the gate, Dr. Womack, share with us, share with our listeners some of your thoughts on the importance and the legacy and tradition started by Dr. Carter G. Woodson on the occasion of Black History Month. And feel free, feel free to correct me if I spoke in error in any way, shape, or form. No, Phil, I think that you're right on point. Um, I think that one of the most significant things about what, what Dr. Carter G. Woodson was trying to do at that point was to acknowledge the experiences and the accomplishments and, and many of the endeavors that African Americans had made and contributed to the United States. Um, you know, we are often taught, even in public education today, about George Washington Carver and the peanut. But when you look at that in comparison to what you see, and no disrespect intended to brother George Washington Carver, you know, an African-American man by the name of Louis Latimer invented the carbon filament that makes the light bulb work. A refrigerator um, was was perfected by an African inventor by the name of J.A. Standard, the air conditioner that we use every day, perfected by Frederick McKinley Jones. There were a lot of things that African-Americans had done that were not receiving any recognition whatsoever. So people were coming to school, taking curriculum, and not learning anything about themselves. And I remember a quote that was given to me that a people without knowledge itself is like a tree without roots. Meaning that you have no foundation. You don't know that you were explorers in Matthew Henson. Inventors like Lewis Latimer. Scientists like Katherine Johnson. You know, there were just so many different things that we had done. And it received no recognition whatsoever other than slavery and civil rights. So Dr. Woodson was right on point in regards to his goals and his efforts for people. Not just African American people, but all of America to be able to understand that even the White House in D.C. was built by African American labor. Benjamin Banneker drew the blueprint for the city of Washington, D.C., which is our nation's capital, after the uh, the initial draftsman, you know, uh, left the job. Mm-hmm. So there were a lot of things that, that black Americans had done uh, which did not receive recognition, whether it was Christmas Addicts giving his life right before the American revolutions and the Boston Massacre, um, or just the number of African-American soldiers who fought in the Spanish-American War, the American Revolution, the Civil War, uh, World War II, World War One, and came home to segregated society, redlining. Some of them were lynched in their uniforms after World War One. Yeah, you know, they were fighting and dying for a country. They didn't necessarily fight and die for them. So what Dr. Woodson was trying to do was bring attention to America, that, that we are a man, we are people, and we have made significant contributions to this country um, and, and it's important that we recognize that because you know we, we form biased opinions when we only get one side of the story so by doing that in the month of February not only does it bring recognitions to the contributions of, of African Americans but it brings recognitions to America in general that your African American brothers have made some significant contributions that have helped this country's economy helped us through war times inventors explorers authors you know and, and, and it's important that we recognize that because when you take and look at the curriculum that we see in the public education right now, almost every state across the United States requires to take some type of state assessment. Um, and in those state assessments, very rarely, which a lot of you know schools make sure that their kids do well on because that's how they're ranked, um, have any contributions or limited contributions from African Americans. So you begin to 
recognize that if you don't teach your history to somebody, somebody else will tell it to you. Um, and it may not always be right, as the book says, his story. Uh, and so when you write the book, you can tell the story. And Carter G. Woodson took a lot of time, effort, and, and scrutiny about what he was trying to do. I love it when you tell that story about his story. Uh, he who tells the story, it's his story. That's, you know, that's that's so true. And you nailed, you already answered one of the questions I was going to ask you, so I won't even take time to repeat it because you shared with us in that answer that you just gave about why it's so important, you know, to the fabric of this country. So we'll move on. Fantastic, fantastic stuff already. Now, Dr. Womack, I listen to you closely when you speak. You are a great orator I, I mean it when i tell you that and thank you our pleasure is the truth as well and you know i've referred to you as a set of encyclopedia britannicas with legs but built like a <laughs> but built like a sherman tank you know or a or a bradley fighting vehicle or something like that <laughs> and you've mentioned that your studies and, and knowledge of the history of black richness, wealth, education, and advancement predates 1619. And you've shared with me uh, the, the details on how that is developed and supported. Share with some of our listeners what you've uncovered about the vast and deep history of black people prior to 1619. Thank you, Phil. Well, uh, there was a gentleman by the name of Dr. Ben who came to Mount Union uh, when I was a freshman, struggling on campus academically. And he asked, you know, three questions. Those questions were, who invented the light bulb? Of course, I said Thomas Edison. He said, you're wrong. Um, and he showed me a picture of Louis Latimer and the carbon filament and the patent number. He said, who wrote the Three Musketeers? I said, Shakespeare. He said, you're wrong. Um, then he showed me a picture of Alexander Dumas. Um, who wrote the Three Musketeers, the Count of Monte Cristo, and the Iron Mask, all during the 1800s when African Americans here in this country were still slaves. But then he asked a question about Goshen and Egypt um, and Moses. And I was going to a Methodist school, so I thought the religious professors were going to crucify him. Like, I know you're not questioning, you know, uh, the contributions that we learned in the Methodist uh, Christianity. And what he showed me was that Egypt was in Africa, and I never knew that. Um, and he talked about Africa being the center of the world at one point in regards to knowledge, in regards to education, in regards to commerce, in regards to urban planning or planning for construction and building. And, you know, we were never taught that in school, even though we went to Book to High School, which was a predominantly African-American school, almost 90 percent African-American. I had never been taught those things. So as a result of it, I began to read extensively on the contributions of not only African-Americans, but of Africans. And uh, I began to read and I found out that the Portuguese had actually started the slave trade. Um, then they moved to the Dutch and then the Spanish. And I read a book called Malifa Asante, The History of African and African-Americans. And there was a picture in there of the all-night civilization of... Uh, and it was a mask, and it was a black mask with, with exposed lips and things of that nature. And Malifa Asante said in his book that Columbus noted on his third voyage to America that Africans were already known to trade with the islanders. And I was just like, wow. So Christopher Columbus, explorer, noted in his diaries that Africans had already been coming across the Atlantic to the Americas and trading. Well, you know, Columbus came in 1492, so that made me begin to read deeper. And I began to find out that the Spanish were bringing African slaves to the continent of North America in order to build villages. As a matter of fact, in 1526, there was an insurrection of the slaves against the Spanish here in America. 
And so they were slaves. They were not coming over as indentured slavers. They were slaves for the Spanish. And that was 1526 uh, in the South Carolina area. So, you know, when we talk about Jamestown in 1619 and 20 Africans being brought over, Africans were already here in this country with the Spanish uh, when they brought them over as slaves. And, and, and Europe wasn't the first country to start the slave. It started with the Portuguese. And so there were things that were taking place prior to 1619 in books like C.A.D.O. on the African Origin of Civilization. J.A. Rogers, 100 Amazing Facts About the Negro. Uh, Lerone Bennett, They Came Before the Mayflower. Um, all of these books share this information. Uh, Malipo Sante. The History of African and African Americans. And I just began to read extensively to find out about what took place prior to Columbus supposedly discovering America and what were the contributions that were taking place on the continent of Africa pre the 13 colonies, pre uh, the Union and the Confederacy, pre, you know, the United States of America, pre 1619. And as I began to read and learn more, you know, I just, it, it expound my, my knowledge and my information. And as a teacher of African American studies, um, I began to share that information because, you know, one of the most important things I think we can do, feel is to read, to write, to speak, but most importantly, to be able to critically think and to get into the research in order to find out what took place other than what they keep telling us in his story. Mm -hmm. And um, that's why I began to look into that. And some of the people who helped was like the Dr. Crosby at, you know, Kent State, you know, a precursor of Pan-African Studies uh, at Kent State University. May he rest in peace. But being around people like um, Dr. Crosby and getting a chance to read some of those books and that information uh, really helped me understand that there were things taking place here well before 1619 with Africans and slaves in the Carolinas. And, and that's where I always say, you know, we were here way before 1619, and we were also noted in Columbus's diaries to be here before 1492. Wow, that's tremendously interesting. That really is. It is. You know, time flies. It really does. And it was a year ago in February, which was the most recent occasion when we were blessed to have you on the show. And, you know, among the tremendous amount of ground that we covered, the, the fantastic reach that that broadcast had, thanks only to you, you know, we had discussed the Overton window, which in all honesty was a completely new concept in theory to me. And but just as an update on our previous episode to refresh our critical thinking processes and if you could remind us what exactly is the Overton window again and as an immediate follow-up to that from from where you see things today looking back on what we spoke about last in February of 2021 politically socially and however it applies what's the current status and state of the Overton window has it has it metaphorically closed is it still open or stuck halfway well part of the Overton window is about when is a good time in order to promote policy when is a good time in order to make change is the time right for us to present legislation or to try to move forward with a project and in the Overton window, you have what's called two directions, east and west. And on that east and west, there's a list of possible things that can take place. So let's say, for example, you have something that looks like it may have been unthinkable. Today in the United States of America, we have same-sex marriages. That might have looked at as unthinkable, let's say, in the 1960s. And then later on, it gradually became a radical thought. Then people began to believe, well, maybe this is acceptable. 
And then somebody said, well, maybe this is sensible. Well, in this little period of time called the Overton window, it goes from popular to policy to popular, and then it moves back. And that's when it starts to go west. And like, well, I don't know if that's still sensible. We don't know if it's acceptable. Now that same policy begins to look at as radical. And then eventually goes right back to unthinkable. And so somebody could just Google the Overton window and they would show you the spectrum in regards to going from unthinkable to unthinkable, radical to radical, acceptable to acceptable. But this little small policy or period of time where something that is looked at as sensible can go from popular to policy. And so what happens is, if we are able to take advantage of these periods of time, for example, a large percentage of the civil rights legislation was passed during the 1960s. Although people have been fighting for civil rights uh, after the Emancipation Proclamation uh, and the 13th Amendment to the Constitution, Frederick Douglass and those guys and several other people were fighting for this as abolitionists uh, during slavery. And so with that being the case, eventually what became radical became acceptable and sensible from popular to policy. But in the 1960s, there was the Civil Rights Act, there was the Voting Rights Act, there was the March on Washington, um, there was the Fair Housing Policy. There was multiple pieces of civil rights legislation that were passed during the 60s because it was not only sensible, it was popular and they were able to change that into policy. And so right now, here we are in 2022, and there have been some extreme events that have taken place that gives us a small window of time in order to put policy in place that will address some of the most radical and unthinkable or unacceptable thoughts that we've seen. And we as a people have to figure out what it is that we want to change in order to make America better. We saw some very radical events take place on January 6th at the Capitol building. What was the cause of that? How did it get to that? And so what are the policies that we need to put in place while these things are popular and we can turn them into policy in order to make America better? And that's basically what the Overton window is about. It's a small window of time that we get in order to take those things that are going from sensible to popular and make them policy. And by making them law, therefore they're on the books, not with an executive order that only stays in place as long as the president is there, but a policy that can be implemented and can carry on beyond whoever is in the presidential seat. And so, you know, that's why I spoke about the Overton window. We have a period of time right now. Look at all of the marches that took place as a result of what took place to George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmed Aubrey, um, and, and, and so many others. You know, whether it be Trayvon Martin, whether it be Tamir Rice, whether it be Sandra Bland, there have been so many things going on in America in regards to police brutality towards African Americans. But when had we ever seen the magnitude of the marches and the protests, not only in one state, but nationwide, worldwide, in order to bring attention to what they saw as injustices in regards to police brutality or the treatment of people of color in this country. And so that was a time right there where this is sensible that we need to look at how we can do policy or policy changes in regards to voting rights. And, and you see, we have a huge chasm here in America between Democrats and Republicans to the point it's almost a nation that is divided. So how do we come together? You know, united we stand, divided we fall, we the people, in order to form a more perfect union, 
You know, how do we do that collectively in order to keep America at its preeminence in regards to an economic power, a world power, uh, a civil leader? You know, if we can't come together collectively, what are those policies that we need to put in place in order to bring this country back together? Because, you know, it, it seems to me almost like Andrew Hacker said or Otto Kerner, you know, two nations separate and unequal. Yeah. And uh, I don't know if we can stand if we don't do these things collectively for the betterment of the people. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, let's tap the clutch for a second and let's talk a little bit about education. I know your career's foundation is constructed on education and education is today's promise to be redeemed in the future. It's a promise for and a promise of a brighter tomorrow. And the lawyers for Light em Up want me to express clearly as a disclaimer that I am not an expert on charter schools and their funding. Okay, we, we, covered, we covered that, so the lawyers will be happy. And Dr. Womack, please, please feel free to educate us and correct me if I speak in error. But as I understand it, in Ohio, Charter schools receive their funding directly from the state, and the amount must be equal to per pupil funding of the student's resident district multiplied by 25%. And that amount offered is adjusted according to several factors, such as special education and English language learners. So my question is, as the superintendent over Region 3 in Columbus, Ohio, governing the largest public school system in Ohio. Can you share with us your professional thoughts as they relate to charter schools taking dollars from public school coffers? And do you feel that that's fair, just, right, and equitable? And in your opinion, what would be a better approach, if any? Thank you, Phil. Uh, I think you did an, ex uh, an exceptional job. Many public educators, administrators, and district administrators may not be able to articulate the funding and how that goes. Uh, I think there's several treasures, school <laughs> treasures throughout the state of Ohio, who may not have been able to articulate that the way you did. Um, the plus 25% is new to me, but there is new legislation um, that goes along with that, and you are absolutely correct. Um, a student who has been identified as an English language learner, there's a weighted formula on um, federal dollars that go along with that and also a student who's been identified as a student who has exceptionality or special needs there's a federal weighted formula that comes along with that too um, and that information or that money comes from the federal and the state government and, and so um, per pupil funding is the average per pupil amount that a student would get in the state of Ohio and most recently to my recollection it was about six thousand dollars per student so if I'm a charter school and I have 10 students well 10 times six thousand is going to give me sixty thousand dollars That'll be broken down over uh, 12 months over the course of the school year, which is actually 10, but they break it down over the course of the year, how you're going to get these payments. If I have 100 students, they're $600,000. And so what goes on is, but if those students um, have a disability, let's say that is a student who identifies who has autism, where there's a per-pupil amount that's similar to about $28,000 on top of the per-pupil amount that that student would get. Or that student is identified as a specific learning disability or additional funds to come along with it. But, you know, this money comes from the local public school districts because these are students who would normally go to the public schools. And my whole dissertation was called Sanction, exploring uh, the perceptions of urban school principals on the sanctions associated with No Child Left Behind, but from the perspective of principals who actually turned around low-performing schools. 
And I wanted to get their um, perceptions, ideas, and thoughts on how do you feel about No Child Left Behind and some of the sanctions. And one of those sanctions were if your school is not performing, they could go to a charter school. Charter school being funded by state and federal dollars in order to allow that student to have choice. And feel it became difficult because what we began to see is a large number of parents, mostly minority, uh, mostly uh, on free and reduced lunch, said, I want to give my students something else. They had become fed up with the public school system and did not feel like we were providing the education that was necessary for their students, and they had choice. And so many of them jumped on the charter school bandwagon and brought their students to those schools. And what we began to see in public education is that many of those students came back not performing at the same level as they had left in their reading levels, in their math levels, et cetera. Ohio ranks um, all of our schools based on what's called a performance index. Every school is ranked on how their students score on the state assessments. And if you look at the lowest performing schools in the state of Ohio, out of the lowest 100, 97 of them are charter schools. And so what happens is the funding puts us in a situation, field which is very unique because not only does Ohio fund charter schools we now fund what's called an Ed Choice Voucher Program. So students can leave public schools and get a voucher to go to a private religious institution or a private school, such as Hovind, St. V, mm-hmm. uh, Yatora, Hebrew Academy, St. Peter's, private schools. I so see. Ohio is spreading that dollar that used to come to public education three different ways now. At one point, it was spread between the public school system and the charter school system. And charter schools are public schools, but some of them are for-profit. Some are non-profit. And in many cases, in the example of a school like ECOT, which was an online school, um, they falsified numbers to the extent that that school was closed wow. um, because they, they had falsified numbers. And, and it's a numbers game. In order for a charter school to operate, you need to have a significant number of students because you're only getting the state funding aid, which is a base formula at about $6,000. If a student is identified with a disability, it makes it even more difficult, but that's more funding that comes in. Well, the teachers at that time, you know, to my knowledge, didn't even be required to have a teaching certificate. Principals were not required to have a principals or administrative certificate, but it allowed us to open up schools with people who had great ideas and great intentions in some cases. Mm-hmm. But in other cases, what you fall out was the default rate in regards to the number of charter schools that open. And when you spread that public dollar three ways, remember this, charter schools can't run for levies either. And so as a public school district, if our coffers get low, if our expenses are higher than our revenue, then what we can do is go for a levy. And therefore, we can get more taxpayer dollars based on property taxes, based on levies to come back into our schools. Charter schools don't get the same caveat. Um, My thoughts on charter schools are, I think it's an experiment that has taken several millions of dollars from the public school system. I don't know if they're very effective in regards to uh, maintaining. There are some charter school organizations, big corporations that have done exceptional jobs of finding a way to educate students. But the large and the vast majority here in the state of Ohio, speaking specifically for the state of Ohio, have not educated students to the same rate that we've seen in public education. And here's my caveat. We as public education institutions have to do a much better job. We have to do a much better job because all of us are ranked on this state assessment, which is one of the problems that I have with this to begin with, that there's one test that we take at one time during the year. And for the most part, we are all judged on how we do on this one test. But those are the rules of the game. And once you know the rules of the game, you know, you have to be able to function that way. But charter schools have struggled in order to improve the academic outcomes here in the state of Ohio to show that they're performing 
at or above the public school districts in which many of the students come from. And they struggle sometimes with facilities. You know, we get money in order to build buildings. So there is funds that come into public school systems in order to renovate, build new schools, do things of that nature. And charter schools are not getting those same dollars. And a lot of it has to do with their current loans performance. So what I would ask your viewer or your listener to do is just to go to the performance index rankings in the state of Ohio or look nationwide and find out how the charter schools are performing in comparison to the public schools. And, and, and I think here's the other thing about it, too. Charter schools can choose who come within their doors. As a public school system, we take everybody in roles. Mm-hmm. You know, we take everybody in roles. And we ensure that our teachers are licensed. They are certified. They have the credentials as you know required by the state of Ohio. And yes, we have a long way to go. And we have a lot of things that we need to improve on. But I don't think by taking dollars from public school systems and sending them to charter schools, it has shown any significant gains in regards to increases in graduation rates, increases in state performance on state assessments. A large percentage of the kids that we see come right back into our school systems. And, you know, we see great inflation. They may have came out with a 4.0 or a 3.8 and they come back into the school and they're still performing one to two, three grade levels below expectations based on normal reference assessment, assessments, formative tests um, than when they left us. So it's been a struggle, man. The problem right now, um, I believe, is that not only are we sending money to charter, now we're sending money to private and private is exactly that private. There's some schools I'll never be able to get in, whether it be the admissions criteria, whether it be my religious affiliation, whether it be my entrance exam, Mm -hmm. um, or things of that nature. Private means private. So how do we take public dollars and send them to private schools? Yeah, that's an excellent point. As it related to educators educating in the 21st century, you mentioned recently in a very, what I thought was a very eloquently worded social media post that we are here to serve, not to save. Could you elaborate more on that for our listeners and give it a little more context? Absolutely. So what I meant by serve versus save is very simply this. Many times what I've found in my 30 years of public education is that I'll have conversations with teaching staffs. And, you know, I've been in six urban districts, um, four of Ohio's urban big eight. And teachers feel like it's their job to save the poor student who is coming from a dysfunctional family or a single parent home or a parent that's incarcerated or high mobility. And they feel it's their job to save them. And when the student does not reciprocate the same amount of love or becomes challenging, then they blame it on the student. A servant mentality is such that you don't blame it on the student. You are happy to be able to serve in this capacity in order to make a difference. I'm here to serve you, not to save you. Um, you know, I don't know how you feel on your uh, your podcast, but you guys are only Jesus can save. Our job is to serve, and it is a privilege to serve. That means every day I'm coming in and giving 110%. I want to applaud your background, your culture, whatever your situation and circumstance is, as opposed to I need to save you from something. You know, I want you to be who you are 110% authentically, and I am having a privilege to serve you on a day-to-day basis. You are not here to save anybody. And I think that is a mentality that we have to work on in regards to a mental mindset because it gives the impression that students come in at a deficit because of undesirable circumstances. And many people who call themselves saving students look at those students as if they are coming in with a deficit, as if because of their undesirable circumstances, to you per se, that we have to save them. Where when you look at a student and say their circumstances and situations are their circumstances and situations, it is my job to serve them exactly where they're at, to get them to where they need to be academically, 
I'm going to say it one more time, academically, because mm-hmm. that's what we do as a public education institution. We make sure we have a safe learning environment and that teaching and learning takes place every day. Then you have a better mentality or stronger mentality in order to make a difference with these students. And, and, and that is what I meant by that, because I run into a lot of educations that had a savior complex. I've saved this kid. I've saved this kid. I've saved this kid. No, you served this kid. You didn't save anybody. If you gave him a quality education and you gave him the best and you charged him with rigor, then you've been able to do an exceptional job of serving that student and serving that community. We can't save nobody. And that's not our job to save. I see. Absolutely. Excellent point. And again, well worded. Dr. Womack, let's talk a little bit about tensions that can happen between people, interpersonal relations. You know, recently and completely, let me say, completely inadvertently, I was told that I committed or expressed a microaggression. Okay. And the whole process, the whole process took place in an email communication. It instantly became a high stress situation. I was having a conversation with a friend and business colleague, and I was trying to discuss with her the logistics of an upcoming proposed project, you know, inquiring as to if the project was going to take place at all. You know, I was, I was actually initially asking for scheduling information, dates and times for a planning session, kind of like a timeline of sorts for achieving tasks. And I uttered these words in in an email. I typed these words out. I said to her, um, I think you might be overthinking things a little. Completely innocent. You know, I, I would say that to anybody, you know, just in casual conversation. Boy, oh boy, boom, the missiles had cleared the silos. She she I'm just going to tell you like it was she drops what I considered to be the race card and a gender card, which from my standpoint was not only a 15 yard unnecessary roughness penalty, but also a loss of, loss of down. You know, I I've thought and I could be wrong. I'll be the first to put my hand up and say I'm sorry and to apologize. That's just who I am. But I thought there was no just cause whatsoever, nor was there a place to do that. Now, if writing what I wrote. By saying, um, I think you might be overthinking things a little. If writing that is sexist and racist language, then maybe a person needs, really needs to walk around with their lawyer next to them, you know, 24-7. And I say all that to set this question up, you know, as we try our best to do our best, striving forward in our thoughts, words, and deeds in the hope and prayer of coming together to try in this experiment in liberty to truly form a more perfect union and to be repairers of the breach. Have we become super sensitive in our discourse with one another? Are we oftentimes guilty of majoring in the minors or not keeping our eyes on the prize in any way, shape, or form, inadvertently polarizing one another and pushing each other further apart with our exposed slights and hypersensitivities that we share between one another? You know, Phil, I, I say, you know, I think everything happens on a case-by-case basis. Um, not having the background to know exactly how often the discourse took place and all the above, all I can do is paraphrase a thought. Um, you know, a lot of times it's not what we say, it's how we say it. And I know this, once you add a word, you know, you can never take back what you said. You can always, you know, once you say something, you never take back what you said, but you can always add a word. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think what has happened is we become so 
um, yes, I say hypersensitive to, to words because words do matter. You know, there was a quote that says, sticking stones may break my bones, um, but words should never hurt you. And I think that's the biggest false thing you've ever said. Words matter, man. There are things that were said to me when I was a young kid that still impact me today. But I believe that, you know, that, that, that we have become hypersensitive to wording and how things are worded or how things are said. And many people make a tremendous living on the use of words. And so... Uh, I think there are things that have been said today that, you know, have been said 15, 20 years ago, and, and it wouldn't bother anybody. Uh, but it really depends on, you know, what is the agenda, uh, who's pushing the agenda. And as Conrad I once told me, he just said, you have to be aware of these four Ps at all times. Politics, people, perception, and policy. And the politics of what's going on in 2021 and 2022 have dictated um, that, that words... Um, situations, circumstances can be taken out of context and be used against you. Uh, as what they say in Miranda rights, anything you say can and will be used against you. And I think a lot of times it comes down to the intent as well as the relationship um, that people have with each other in regards to how things are taken, whether they be in context or out of context. Um, and, and sometimes we find out that, you know, people that we thought were our friends uh, may not have been. You know, it may have just been based on a relationship or a situation or, you know, hey, for the time such as this, this is a project that we're working on. Yeah. Um, you said something that, to me, not knowing that there's an underlying cause or situation that they've never spoken up on and just use that as a cause in order to say, okay, now I got you on something. Mm -hmm. When in fact, the whole time you were working against me, but because I don't know the context of the conversation field, it'd be very difficult, but I do believe we've become hypersensitive to some of the things that are said. And I do know that words matter though. Absolutely. Words really do matter. And uh, a lot of times it comes down to the intent. And so what I do is a disclaimer, like I have a speech coming up next week in Lakewood. I always sit down and say, my intent is to inform, not to offend. Mm -hmm. You know, and so however you take it, remember, my intent is to inform, not to offend. And that's a disclaimer that I use. Um, I don't know, my attorney has not told me that that's what I'm supposed to say. Mm -hmm. But I say it because I want people to truly understand that I'm trying to give you information. How you take it or how you receive it is really on you. And it reminds me of something that my, uh, I, I was reading not too long ago. Uh, the story that we tell ourselves. You know, what is the story? Three people can watch the same event and take it three different ways. Three people can read the same story and, and, and take it three different ways. And, and so the lens and the context, as Robin D'Angelo talks about, uh, our cultural lenses are based on our experiences, our exposures, our examples, our encounters, and our environments. And different people coming from different experiences or different exposures, having different examples or environments and encounters, it impacts their expectations. It also impacts their, their cultural lenses, how they look at things, you know, how they see things. And so, you know, not knowing the individual's background or their experiences, exposures, encounters, environment, you know, that that would probably impact the way certain people take certain things. Sure. Um, and so we just have to be careful with what we say, because they say you can always add a word but you can never take back what you said no, that's so true. That's it, it's true. the story that that person told themselves what you said that person made up a story in their mind that this is what that meant like wow and, and you're like man hold on that's not what i meant at all but in their mind to them that's exactly how that felt the blessing in the whole situation is feel is that that person was able to sit down and express to you that this is how i feel and then you know when people say that to me i say well tell me more or tell me why or explain what you why you took it that way and so I just try to get deeper um, in regards to, so tell me more, tell me why, explain how you took it, how could I have said it, because here's my intention. Yeah. And um, yeah, even comedians talk about that now, like, hey, there's certain jokes they're scared to tell. 
Whereas 10 years ago, man, everybody was laughing because you didn't mean no malice or any bad intent. And we're just trying to make people laugh. And a lot of times it's at other people's fault. But, you know, I think we have thicker skin then. So, you know, things have changed tremendously, man. Things have changed tremendously. And words do matter. Yeah, absolutely. Isn't isn't there a Womackism that your grandmother had shared about the truth being only half, yeah. half of the story? <laughs> half the story, yeah. Womackism. Yeah. Grandma Alice Womack, she said the difference between a lie and the truth Sandy's only half the story. There you go. You know, the difference between a lie and the truth is only half the story. <laughs> Prophetic, you know, that's the truth. Absolutely. Dr. Womack, you are the father of a U.S. servicewoman and know in advance that we thank her for her service. What, if any, are your concerns as it relates maybe to the poor track record that the U.S. military has with issues of sexual harassment among its female personnel and the fact that individuals of color, black service members, were were substantially more likely than white service members to face military justice or disciplinary action? You know, that's a good question. Uh, my daughter, Alexis, is a staff sergeant in the United States Air Force stationed in Alamogordo, New Mexico. This will be going into her fourth year. She chose the military right, and I'm proud of her. My grandfather, George, served in the United States Marines um, during the Korean War. My grandfather, Wally Powell, served in World War II in the United States Army. You know, my uncle, Tom Lee, served in the Navy and the Air Force. Uh, my cousin, Ken, is retired in the United States Army, so I have several members of my family who've taken the military route. And a lot of them got involved with the military because they saw it as the only way out. They didn't have the finances or the resources in order to go to college. And the United States services provided them an opportunity to see the world, uh, to come out with a, a honorable discharge, which would give them opportunities to civil service jobs. And some of them would even retire and earn their college degrees, um, master's degrees, et cetera, through the United States military. What I worry about today is that, you know, as my daughter being the United States Air Force, um, is she able to speak up for herself? Is she able to articulate her concerns? Are there policies and procedures in place in order to address any indiscrepancies or inequities? And, and are we looking at that tremendously? I think what has happened now is COVID has brought a lot of things. I call it the great revealer as a Sheriff Brown, our, our state senator says, it revealed a great deal about some of the inequities that we knew, but nobody was speaking on. And so, you know, I just want her to make sure, are you familiar with the policy? Do you know the procedure? Do you know how to speak the language? If anything should happen or should occur, you know, I hate to put a, a blanket on a situation when in fact I don't have enough information and evidence to speak on it. But I do know with this for her, in my family, United States services provided them multiple opportunities and it provided people of color multiple opportunities. Now, I didn't always like it because I said, here's the only country I know where African-Americans can fight and die for a country that wasn't necessarily fighting for them. You know, imagine going to France during World War One and fighting and then coming back to the United States and being hung in a uniform or not being able to go to specific places or go in the back door. When you die, you're seeing your friends fight and die in another country, a foreign country at that. And then you're treated that way. You know, we see that in, in, in 1917 and 1919. And there's all types of history that we can read up on where U.S. servicemen came back and were treated as less than U.S. citizens, even though they were fighting in World War One. You know, the Tuskegee Airmen fought in segregated situations during World War II. I mean, we were still fighting the civil, you know, the civil rights acts and things of that nature in the 60s. And we had people going to Vietnam to fight. You know, Muhammad Ali said it better. said, Viet Cong had never said or called me the N-word. You know, you want me to go fight for a country that, hey, you calling me this. I, I can't go here. My kids can't go to certain school. You know, I'm fighting and dying for this country. And I think the United States and all I say this to African-Americans are some of the biggest patriots in the world. Mm -hmm. What other group of people have fought and died for 
country that wasn't fighting for them. Three-fifths of a human being, not able to move in certain neighborhoods, unequal pay because of the color of your skin, not able to go in the front door and have to go to the back door, even though you didn't fought and seen your colleagues and friends die for a country in segregated facilities. You know, the American Revolution started by the act of the Boston Tea Party and Christmas Alex is the first man to give his life for this country. And it's like, wow, why do we keep being treated as second-class citizens? So, you know, I'm hoping that the military is changing tremendously. It is not where it used to be, and it's certainly not where we want it to be. But I know this, it has provided multiple opportunities for people in my family who were not able to go to college or chose not to go to college in order to improve their economic status. Um, it's provided health care, dental care, uh, VA system. My grandfather's 89 years old, Phil. And instead of going to his his family doctor, guess where my grandfather goes? The VA? You got it. Yeah. He yeah. will wait and go to, because he says, Sandy, I serve this country and this country is going to pay and continue to take care of me. Yeah, yeah. You know, and that is his start. And that's how he feels. So when my daughter went to the Air Force, Grandpa George was just like, hey, listen, I'm glad she joined. I thought you was going to join. I said, well, Grandpa, if I hadn't passed that national teacher's exam, I had already signed up to the ASAP. I was going to the Air Force, too. Mm-hmm. So I was trying to be an officer. But uh, praise God, I passed the uh, national teacher's exam, got my teaching certificate, and I was able to move into education, which has really been a blessing for me. But uh, yeah, I just want my daughter to be aware of the policies, um, the procedures, know the language. And if anything should occur, know that her daddy has it back. And there are policies and procedures out here in order to address those inequities or anything that may come her way. And you're right, Phil. The United States uh, services have shown, you know, over the years that, hey, we as African-Americans have to go through a whole bunch in order to be treated as equal. And I'm hoping that, you know, in 2022, um, that we have the ability in order to rise above some of these things. But we still live in a country that's, you know, is definitely divided, man. Yeah. Definitely divided. No, absolutely. Absolutely. Dr. Womack, I know you are very familiar with sports at their highest levels. Being a two-time NCAA All-American Collegiate Wrestling Champion, a Purple Raider of Mount Union College yourself, on February 1st, as we kicked off Black History Month, a nuclear bomb, so to speak, of a class action lawsuit was filed by Brian Flores, the former head coach of the Miami Dolphins, against the National Football League, alleging, among other things, racial discrimination in hiring practices. The lawsuit, at its core, is an issue which is actually far bigger than just football and far bigger than coaching, as Flores stated in a recent press conference. Now, most NFL players are individuals of color. Last time I checked with some recent hirings within the past week, less than five head coaches are. There was a time when only Pittsburgh Coach Tomlin was the only head coach. Now, Flores filing suit took remarkable courage and bravery and was it was a remarkable act of defiance. And I heard it compared as equivalent to Rosa Parks refusing to give up her bus seat in Montgomery, Alabama on December 1st of 1955. NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell told the league's 32 teams on February 5th recently that the results of the current hiring cycle for head coaches have been unacceptable with regard to diversity, saying the league will retain outside experts to help reevaluate and examine all policies guiding minority hiring. Now, Flores is only 40 years old, and unfortunately, but most likely, he's probably hurting his chances of getting another job in the insular, conservative NFL, which also happens to be arguably the country's most popular form of entertainment. Now, the NFL, with its tax-exempt status, 
status since 1966, as granted by Congress, appears to be a league that overtly doesn't esteem, welcome, or encourage an equal contribution from individuals of color, as the league remains rife with racism, particularly when it comes to the hiring and retention of black head coaches, coordinators, and general manager positions. Share with us your thoughts, if you would, on Coach Flores and his bold effort to hold the league that has worked collaboratively and conspiratorially to destroy Colin Kaepernick, you know, how he's tried to hold them accountable. And can you relate your thoughts about this to education and our society in general? You know, I feel I am so glad you brought this question up. Um, you know, one of the first things you have to do uh, to solve a problem, Phil, is to acknowledge that it exists. And in the United States of America, if you don't put it on paper, it don't exist. And that's the reality of the situation. We can watch a documentary, we can hear a podcast, we can have a conversation. But if it's not on paper, it don't exist. And so that has always been one of my thoughts. The first thing you have to do to solve a problem is to acknowledge that it exists. And if it ain't on paper, it don't exist. And so the one thing we can do is look at videos, hear music, all of the above. But until there is some type of significant policy change or some type of plea, you know, then we find ourselves talking about the same things over and over again. So I'm glad that the young brother brought it to the attention that this is something that we all see. We watch football every day. You know, every weekend, I mean, the NFL is so popular. They're taking a whole day of the week. Uh, you know, in regards <laughs> to what goes on. Yeah. And, and with that being the case, and, and you're right, Mike Tomlin, um, at one point until Lovey Smith got hired again, and was the only black coach in the league. And, you know, I remember during our lifetime, you know, Art Shell in modern day history was the first African-American coach. We were watching football every week, mm -hmm. whether it be the Steelers, whether it be the Browns, whether it be the Cowboys, you know, all real popular teams at that time, San Francisco 49ers, um, you know, were winning Super Bowls and, and, and doing things of that nature. And so, you know, before, before we even saw New England doing things, it was the 49ers that was a dynasty. And it was the Pittsburgh Steelers that was a dynasty. It was the Dallas Cowboys that were dynasties. And so those were always real popular teams. But no black coaches. But Al Davis has always been, uh, as we call it, a renegade. And he made Donnie Shell the first black head coach in the modern era. That's in our lifetime, Phil. Yeah. You know, that's in our lifetime. In the NFL, Marion Motley, Otto Graham, Jim Brown, uh, Vince Lombardi, well before that. You know, and, and there were always a large number of African-American players, but there were no coaches. And here we are in 2022, and I think a little passionate about it, it's the truth, and we still don't have any black owners of NFL teams. You know, and, and when you think about the amount of money that is given, I think one of the things that I hope we don't get off task with this is that many of those players come into the league not recognizing that with their salaries, they're the 37% federal tax bracket. So if you're making over $500,000, man, they're taking 37% of that in federal taxes. Let's just think about that. Let's make it $500,000, and I'm at a 37% tax bracket. You're taking $170,000 off of my check. And that's a lot of money, man, that I'm not getting back. Not talking about state and local. Yeah. So it's never getting money, it's keeping money. And, and the owners are keeping money because they are getting uh, all types of uh, exemptions, all type of state and federal funding, local tax dollars, and abatements. Mm -hmm. You know, and it seems like the more money you get, the less taxes you pay. But for the players, you know, that's something that we need to look at. And in regards to the coaches and what Flores did is, you know, we as African-American people used to do something on a day-to-day -day basis. First thing we're going to do, we're going to pray it out, we're going to pray it out, we're going to pray it out, we're going to pray it out. And then Dr. Martin Luther King came and said, listen, not only are we going to pray, but we're going to protest, we're going to protest, we're going to protest, we're going to protest. So now we got prayer and we got protest. The next thing we began to say is we need to be able to change effectively policy. 
So now not only are we praying, not only are we protesting, we're putting things on paper in order to get changes in legislation and bring it to your attention. Because we've been bringing it to your attention. And Ralph Ellison was so popular with his book on the invisible man because the first thing he said is, I'm invisible not because you don't see me, but you choose not to look. And what Brian Flores did was bring attention to a situation that we all saw on a day-to-day basis when we looked at the sidelines in regards to the coaches. We saw young coaches come in who had very limited, if any, experience. And we would see African-American assistant coaches, divisional players doing such and such. Like, man, why do they keep getting overlooked? Why do they keep getting overlooked? Why do they keep getting overlooked? Or brought in for one year, and then they're gone again. And then you bring in a Rooney rule, and you say, hey, we're at least going to interview. But why aren't we getting these positions? Why aren't we qualified for this? You know, and, and so there were things that were taking place over time. So I'm glad that he brought it to the attention. So we go beyond prayer, regard, protest, and to start looking at policy because now this is on paper. And when you think about that in regards to education and things of that nature, although I don't necessarily agree with No Child Left Behind, what it did is bring a light to the disparities that we saw in regards to the current levels of performance of multiple subgroups of students. Students who are economically disadvantaged, students of African-American uh, race, students who, um, who had disabilities. We began to sit down and see that the data shows and suggests that these students are not performing at the same level. What are we doing about that in order to address these discrepancies or these disparities? And so we have to, even as a public education institution, find a way to incorporate exposure, experiences that will make this education system relevant to them. We know that in the United States of America, the easiest and the most effective way to prevent poverty, of which 44% feel of the workforce in America is making below the poverty wages. That was according to 2019 LA Times article I was just reading. 44% of the American workforce between the ages of 18 and 64 were making wages below the federal poverty line. 44%, man. And in the article, as I began to read it, you know, we're talking about 37 million people. Mm -hmm. And they're going to work every day. And one of the biggest things that they talked about in order to improve on that was education. Less than 4% of the people who have a bachelor's degree in this country are living below the poverty level. And folks, we're still struggling. The reality of the situation is we're still struggling. They said that 51% of the United States workforce makes less than $35,000. Man, if you are making $35,000, they're still taxing you at about 12% on federal. So a lot of that money is being taken and, you know, it's more month than it is money. But we know that education is an equalizer because it gives you a skill set, a certification, credentials that allow you to get higher paying jobs. And that's what we need in order to survive. And so I think Flores took a major hit, man, but he took it for the team to say, we have to put this on paper. The Rooney Rule is on paper, but now we're going to go ahead and try to affect some policy changes. That's why we talk so much about that Overton window. Mm-hmm. That's where you make effective policy. Because once it's on paper and it is a law, then we're able to address these things differently because we got federal courts, we have state courts, we have local courts, and there's a law that we can go back to. It doesn't always work, but the point is it's on paper. And now I have a leg to stand on. So, you know, I applaud him for doing what he did to bring attention to something that we saw on a day-to-day basis. Now my hope is that eventually we can start seeing or reaping the fruits of those labor and start to see more and more of our coaches of African-American descent, you know, be able to do it. Or you can look at, you know, look at primetime. Primetime say, hey, listen, I go to Jackson State. 
a HBCU and become a head coach. I'm not going to USC. I'm not going to Ohio State. I'm not going to Texas. I'm not going to uh, another powerhouse, Oklahoma, mm-hmm. or any of those. I'll go to an HBCU. And right now, Deion Sanders is getting some of the top recruits in the nation to come to Jackson State and work with him as a head coach. Because he's had the skill sets. He understands what it takes to break it in the NFL. He's been one of the best players we've ever seen, yet he may have not had the coaching background. He would have never gotten that opportunity in the NFL. And he was one of the best players in his position ever. That's true. So he had to go that route. So let's just think about that and make that correlation. Here's one of the best players we've ever seen into position of cornerback in the NFL, a two-way player. Never would have been given the opportunity to be a head coach in the NFL. and had to go in HBC. Look at Eddie George. Eddie George is now a head coach at the HBCU, not getting that type of experience in the NFL. So, you know, the NFL has a lot of stuff that it has to deal with, but they're the most powerful group out here. They can change the whole day field. So we got to be careful what we say about the NFL. (laughs) (laughs) But the truth don't change, man. The truth don't change. So I just give it to you from my perspective. No, absolutely. To inform, not to offend. But, you know, let's just look at the different stories and the different pathways certain people have had to go in order to become even a head coach at the college level, let alone the NFL. No, No black owners at any team. No, I know. I know. I mean, like we say, the truth disturbs, the truth divides, but ultimately the truth delivers. To piggyback on that question, you know, Dr. King once said that and we have a lot of ground that we still want to cover. So we're going to blast forward. Like I was saying, Dr. King had once said morals cannot be legislated, but behavior can be regulated. You know, the law cannot make an employer love me, but it can keep him from refusing to hire me because of the color of my skin. That's that's a quote from Dr. King. Now, the Rooney Rule is an NFL diversity policy that mandates teams interview ethnic minority candidates outside the organization for coaching and front office positions. And in 2009, the NFL expanded the Rooney Rule to include general managers, Uh, general manager jobs and equivalent front office positions you've pretty much covered my next question but i want to ask it anyways uh, because i still think it's important is it critical and essential that we have a rooney rule in 2022 i would say absolutely and and this is the reason i would say if you i have a cousin by the name of cousin robbie she passed away about four uh, four years ago she was 101 years old and I said, Cousin Robbie, is it better for us today than it was for you? And feel she smacked me in the side of the head. This lady, 100 some years old. And she said, boy, you got to be kidding me. Don't nobody call me Manny. I ain't got to walk through nobody's back door. I'm not walking around looking at no fountains that say white and color. I can buy my own house. I can take care of my own bills and responsibility. They're going to treat me with respect if they don't do nothing else. So is it perfect? Nah, it's not perfect. But it's better. And without having that on paper, we would have nothing. So is it where we want it to be? Absolutely not. Are we making progress? Yeah. yeah. It's progress, but it's not perfect. And, um, you know, and that's something I think about a lot. We've made progress, but it's certainly not perfect. And we got to continue to move forward with that. Because if the Rooney Rule was not in effect, I guarantee you, many of these coaches would not be even getting interviews or considerations for general manager positions, no matter how qualified they are. Uh, we were once told by that same Grandma Womack that told me to get between the lie and the truth is you're going to have to be twice as good to be treated half as well. Mm-hmm. 
you know, and, and, and I began to get as I became an educator looking at my own personal experiences. I looked at people who came into positions who had a bachelor's degree or a master's degree, may not even have the certification, and they will be placed into a principal's position saying, well, they can work on getting their certification law. I'm like, I got the certification, the master's degree, and I'm taking doctoral classes. Mm-hmm. And you get looked over and you wonder, like, why is that? Well, I didn't know that that was the cousin of, the uncle of, the family member of, or generations or they were trying to put things in place. And so we as African Americans feel you just really have to think about this and put it in perspective as well. You know, Dr. King was just assassinated in 1968. Mm-hmm. That's not a long time ago, Phil, man, and I don't feel like an old man. No. You know, I, I feel pretty young, but I still feel fairly young, man. And I'm saying so in my parents' lifetime, in my grandparents' lifetime, you know, as Cousin Robbie said, I've been called the N-word. I've had to drink water out of fountains that said colored only. I couldn't use the restroom and had to hold it for miles upon miles because there was not a place where I could go and use the restroom. I couldn't make the same money as somebody else doing the exact same job. I've been called the N-word. I couldn't get houses in certain neighborhoods because of the color of my skin. I've had friends who've had to put other people's name down in order to get, you know, what they wanted so that people would see them and get them the house, but it was on my finances. You know, she talked about different things she's going through in her lifetime to let me see now. It ain't perfect, but it's progress. But there will be no progress if we don't have some of these things in policy, which is why Dr. King, I believe, fought so hard to say we have to get the United States government to put policies in place, whether you're in the North, the South, the East, or the West, the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, the Fair Housing Act, Equal Employment Opportunity Act. You know, we have an Equal Employment Commission in regards to EEOC, things that we can do in order to fight the injustices that we know take place. We see it every day. We see it every day. So I believe that the Rooney Rule is not perfect, but it is progress. And by Brian Flores bringing that to attention, it is bringing more attention to what we need to do now how we make it work you know you see what happened with colin kaepernick that man has never been given a chance and i haven't seen some quarterbacks on some sundays that i'm like i know kaepernick could do better than this Mm -hmm. but you know that's the sacrifice that he made in order to bring attention to a situation he was just doing that in regards to police brutality towards african-americans man and look at the cost this man has had to pay dr king once said also as well because we had this conversation Civil rights is neither popular nor is it lucrative. And, uh, you know, that man lost his life at 39 years old, never seeing his kids graduate from high school, never make it to their weddings, never even seeing the things that he put in place come to fruition. But there's a quote from a gentleman by the name of Ernest Trueblood, and he said, the true meaning of life is when you can plant a shade tree knowing full well you will never reap the benefits of the shade. We only come through here one time, and there's very few people um, who are willing to make that type of sacrifice in order to make it better for others. And that's exactly what I'm talking about when I say savior versus servant. Mm-hmm. I am willing to serve in a capacity that may be detrimental to me in order to make sure that it's better for somebody else. I'm not trying to save them. I'm trying to serve them so that therefore they can do the same type of things for others. And it's a benefit to serve, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, yeah that's, that's, that's what I mean a lot of times. I say savior versus servant. I couldn't save this one. I couldn't save this one. Man, you couldn't save nobody. Your job is to serve. Yeah, you know, and the better you do, the better they will do. Yeah. Um, and that's the mentality that a lot of educators, especially those who work in public education and urban situations, and not all of them, um, but you will see that sometimes and you'll hear it in their conversations. 
No, absolutely. Absolutely. How significant will be the expressed anticipated appointment by President Joe Biden of the first ever black woman to the highest court in the land? Um, I, I think it will show African-American young ladies that there is a possibility that they can serve in the highest court in the land. You know, right now, African-American females are obtaining and achieving more degrees than African-American men. Um, and I have three daughters and a wife. Um, my wife was the first person to get her doctorate degree. She was Dr. Womack before I was. She married me to today. And so, you know, I smile about that sometimes. And she often reminds me, you know, I was the first Dr. Womack. And I said, yeah, you're right. You're right. You're right. Um, but I believe, you know, I say seeing is believing, man. And when they get a chance to sit down and see, like we saw a Ruth Bader Ginsburg or a Sandra O'Connor or a Sotomayor, you know, who moved into those positions to see an African-American woman um, change the trajectory and the perspective and the, the anticipation of, of African-American young girls to say, hey, I can do that too. I can do that too, because that's a ceiling that we have not been able to break. Um, you know, we are district court judges and appellate court judges. Uh, I think it was Constant Baker Motley, who was the first federal uh, woman black judge, but ultimately to see uh, African-American female on the Supreme Court uh, is not as the same significance to me as it was when I saw our first black president. But I think it will show that we have broken that ceiling um, and we are able to, you know, serve uh, in that branch of government, in that capacity, um, and, and to see a woman that, uh, of African descent um, in that position um, is groundbreaking, breathtaking, and um, it is it is well needed, and um, it, it's about time. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Dr. Womack, our nation is, well, it's been said in the Kerner Commission report that our nation is moving toward two societies, one black, one white, separate and unequal. Now, all a person needs to do is read the Kerner Commission report, and it is a point-by-point -point itemized list of what still plagues us today. Glaring issues such as police practices in communities of color, things like static and pervasive unemployment and underemployment, inadequate housing, inadequate education, and inadequate access to health care, just to name a few. And, you know, we have made progress in the past 50 years, but things have improved, to be sure. But do we flatter ourselves sometimes about just how much progress we've made since the Kerner Commission report was issued? You know, um, I think Otto Kerner and that whole commission with Roy Wilkins took on a monumental task in 1967 to look at those race riots and the things that have been taking place and the riots that were going on in the United States of America. Um, there were even more protests in 1968 after he wrote um, and gave his findings in regards to what he said. And one of the things that I've always kept the Kerner report up front and center, even though very few people um, refer to it, you know, and I'm glad that you brought it to people's attention because they'll talk about the Coleman Report on Education, the Kinsey Report on the Sexual Habits of America, but very few people talk about the Kern Report. In, in the first line of his paragraph of his, his findings, it's basically this, what white Americans have never fully understood, but what the Negro can never forget, is that white society is deeply implicated in the ghetto. White institutions created it, white institutions maintain it, and white society condones it. And then he also went on to say white racism expressing the belief that if you are white you are superior and if you are black you are inferior um, and he said racial stereotypes in fact are part of white america's world um, but they also impact the mindset and the psyche of african americans uh, in regards to imposter syndrome and, and and so he talked about the uh the first level of intensity with police practices we see what took place in regards to the death of unarmed african americans on national tv now 
You know, it's widespread. We've seen that happen. The next thing he said is unemployment and underemployment. He talked about inadequate housing, and then he even moved on to the fourth tenant is inadequate education. He moves on to health care and many of the same things that you talked about. Mm -hmm. So as a result of a few, I went and did some research myself to get a little better understanding in regards to some of the things that are taking place. Because I see it, but I want to have some research on it in order to talk about it. Mm -hmm. um, as Cousin Robbie said, we're making progress, but it's not perfect. Is it going fast enough? I think that in regards to housing, there's still a huge, you know, right now houses are selling so quick, but, um, you know, we got more African-American renters than we do homeowners. And as a result of it, the cost of rent is continuing to go up. Uh, the average cost of rent uh, for a two-bedroom is about $1,000, uh, which is a significant amount of money when you got a large number of people earning below 26500 for a family or $18,000 as, as, as individuals. That's a lot of money. That's a significant amount of your check. What I also looked up was the number of people who were going to college. And in 2004, there were about 11 million people in college, of which about 50% were white. But when I looked at the numbers, there were about 950,000 black students. This was according to the National Center of Educational Statistics. And then I'll get deeper into my answer. Uh, 950,000 uh, were black, 640,000 were Hispanic. And these are four-year institutions, not a, a two-year, but a four-year institutions. Asian Americans were 473,000 and Native Americans were 73,000. And these are full-time students at four-year institutions. Phil, when I looked at that information today, in 2020, uh, National Center of Educational Statistics, the black population in regards to enrollment in college is going up to 2.3 million people. The Hispanic population, Phil, went from 640,000 to 3.6 million. 600 times the number of Hispanic Americans are attending colleges they did before uh, in 2004. You know, so that was just a period of 16 years. The white population doubled as well, 5.3 million to about 9.5 million. Um, and our African American population doubled between 950,000 to 2.3 million. Education in the United States and income go hand in hand, not by accident, um, but by design. And Otto Kerner talked about in his report that lack of adequate education provided lack of economic opportunity because you were defined and you, you would find yourself in a situation that you didn't have access to jobs that were higher paying. But he also said, and even looking at the Brookings Institute, we have to work on the discrimination and the biases in hiring. And so we have to work on the change in mindsets, man, until we get real about the belief systems and the stereotypes and, and the microaggressions and the implicit biases, man, that we deal with here in this country on a day-to-day -day basis, it's going to be very difficult to make some of those changes. And, and, you know, the first thing we have to do to solve a problem is acknowledge that it exists. Feel. I think the reason we still got racism is we still trying to explain it as if it is taking place. Like, you don't see this every day. And you're hiring, and our fine, and our employment, and our housing, and our, you know, it's just, and, and, and police, and policing in regards to what goes on. And so we have not been real with ourselves. And I remember what Reverend Long said to me one day. He said, when I told him I had an ulcer, he, he lived next door to me. He said, Sandy, I don't think it's what you're eating, it's what's eating at you. And until we get real about what's eating at us as a country and address the racism, um, the classism, the sexism, and classism as well as racism are, are really plaguing us right now, then we're going to continue to have these problems, man. And the one thing that you did today that many people don't do is you read. You read, man. That same grandmother said the difference between the line and the truth also told me, she said, if you want to hide something, excuses, I ain't going to say the word. If you want to hide something from my people, put it in the book because ain't nobody reading. Well, Phil, what I'm finding out today, white, black, Chinese, Puerto Rican, Spanish, people ain't reading, man. Yeah, no, that's They're not true. reading. 
No. You're not researching. They're getting a, a two-minute bit on the news, and they make it. They make it gospel. Yeah. You know, so such and such said it. I'm listening to Joe Rogan. He said this and that. Now it's the gospel. Did you do your research? You know, I went to the Brookings Institute. I went to the National Center of Education Statistics. I went to the Center of Disease Control yeah. um, in order to get this information so that I could become more familiar with it. Federal tax codes and income brackets. Yeah. So that therefore I was able to have an informed discussion with you. But, you know, a lot of us are not reading, man, and we're not being real about what's going on with our country. And so until we real about what's eating at us, we, we're not going to be able to turn these things around. Like you said, it ain't what you eat, it's what's eating at you. And what's eating at us, the core of this country, man, is, is that we have not been real about our indiscretions, about the things that have taken place, about the number of people that we have paid in order to deal with our past indiscretions, whether it be the Marshall Plan, whether it be the, uh, the billion dollars of federal aid that we send to other countries, as opposed to dealing with the stuff that we need to deal with internally. It's a quote in the Bible that says specifically, a man is worse than an infidel when he does not take care of his own. And it's in the book of James, and I may be misquoting it because I'm not a pastor. But I remember reading that like, whoa, wait a second. If I don't take care of my own situation, I'm worse than anything else. We're not taking care of our own and addressing our own issues. And as a result of it, the world is looking at us. Yeah. China is looking at us. Russia is looking at us. South America is looking at us. Australia is looking at us. And they're saying to themselves, how can you, America, tell us how we should be dealing with our civil disobedience or our policing system how can you tell us what we should be doing with the disbursement of our funds when in fact you know you got one percent of your population is controlling about 92 percent of the wealth you are incarcerating people of color at a disproportionate rate we were from 235,000 people being incarcerated in 1984 to over 2.1 million people incarcerated not counting those who are under police provision so, you know, we have things that we have to address collectively as a country. And I don't know, sometimes feel that we are the legislators or the people who make it policy, who try to put it in practice, or the people who are enforcing the law. You know, we have the judicial, the executive, and we have the legislative branches mm -hmm. of government, all by design for a system of checks and balances. And I don't know if we have the people in place who are willing to deal with the real situations that are going on, you know. And, and that is problematic in regards to what Kerner said. Housing, we're still struggling in regards to housing. As Richard Pryor said, the cost of living is going up while the chances is going down. We're still dealing with health care disparities, which we definitely saw that were glaring. Um, as a result of COVID and people had access to hospitalization and insurance. And when you're underemployed, man, a lot of times you don't have a health care plan, a dental plan, yeah, that's true. Um, you know, it, it, it's, let alone life insurance. Right. So, you know, there are a lot of things that we need to do collectively. Uh, is it perfect? No. Are we making progress? Yes, but we got a long way to go. Uh, but we got to be real, man. We got to be real about it and set some specific, tangible, measurable goals and progress monitoring. Because uh, I always say, Phil, if you don't know where you're going, you might not like where you end up. And if Jesus had a plan, we better have one. Mm, that's true. You know? That's true. You, you know, know yeah, Painter, we still dealing with it, man. The police brutality, the housing situation, the economic. But I am glad to see that we see more people of color enrolling in four-year institutions. Now, they're coming out with significant debt because here's the other thing, too. The average cost of college in 1995 for a public institution was about $7,000 a year. For private institutions, about seventeen. When I looked at this information the other day, the average cost per year at a private institution was $44,000. And for a public institution, it was like $18,000. That's per year. That's not over four years. That's a lot of money, man. It is. That's a lot of money. It is. You know, like you say, reading 
is fundamental and things that you've said to me over the years, especially it's important and imperative to be able to think critically. You know, that has stuck with me like like meat on the bone all these years. And I just want to let you know that we are so grateful to you for your time, for your talent, for your expertise that you so generously share with us. You know, you bless us with an education every time we have a chance to talk to you. I say it as a joke, but it's true. You are Dr. Downloads because when we, <laughs> when we have you on the show, the people listen, they flock to your episodes, and I know that. Well, Phil, that's a, that's a result of what you're doing, man, because you market, you advertise, you get the information out there and I'm just very pleased that you give me a platform in order to talk about some of these things Phil we don't get a chance to have that man um, but the fact that you uh, that you you have a, a international platform like you do uh, and you use your voice um, in order to bring attention to things that a lot of people are scared to even talk about you know and you have an exceptional question you know you have questions that bring out the best so with that being the case man the feeling is mutual and i'm just hoping that we're able to say something to spread some information man that will make a difference um because uh we 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 need to make a change we're here to serve not to save man and it's a blessing to be able to serve and you've taken your platform and you use it in a mighty way um and so i hope that i said something that will make a difference as i always say feel my intent is to inform um and not to offend and to inform based on you know factual information uh anything I've given and people can look it up um, and get the statistics the information we'll need the Booking Institute the National Center of Educational Statistics J.A. Rogers 100 Amazing Facts About the Negro or pick up an encyclopedia and read the Kerner Report no, it's right there absolutely hey to all of our listeners listening to us we want to say thank you we want to say ciao for now and adios from coast to coast we want to thank again Dr. Womack for being with us hey I'm Phil Rizzo you've got Light Em Up